Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, my name is Ian White. I'm a Vice Chancellor of the University of Bath, and I'd really like to stress how warmly welcome you are to this very special lecture tonight. I do apologize for the delay um, in starting, but we have been waiting uh, for one or two uh, special guests. Uh, can I really, however, stress that it is very important to us uh, that you're here tonight, obviously, to hear such an outstanding speaker as Craig Bennett from Friends of the Earth, and we're so grateful to you for coming. Um, but it really is part of our um, key desire in the university that we engage not only with students and staff, obviously, amongst those in the university community, but also reach out in key topics um, to hear from others and to talk and discuss. Um, a year or so ago, uh, we were delighted when Lord Lieutenant of Somerset, Mrs Annie Moe, who we're hoping will join us, indicated that as a result of her dedication to agriculture and farming within the region and her boundless support, she suggested that maybe we should start a series um, of uh, events, lectures and discussions uh, concerning the use of land and its sustainability. And I wish to pay great tribute to her for being key to inspiring this and then for the Institute of Policy Research uh, for so ably uh, uh, driving this forward. And finally, of course, to thank you for coming tonight. Um, at the University of Bath, we firmly respect scientific evidence. We recognize the need for urgent action uh, to tackle dangerous anthropogenic climate change and, of course, to ensure the best possible use of our land. Everyone, we realize, is a part to play in this significant challenge. Governments, businesses, public sector organizations and charities like universities. And I believe there are a number of ways in which the higher education sector and the University of Bath in particular can make a serious contribution at both the global and local level. As part, for example, of our own commitment within the university to addressing this important issue, uh, we've developed a new climate action framework. Through this framework, we aim to reduce carbon emissions directly uh, on our own campus and contribute to climate change mitigation and adaption through research and its application to policy and society, one reason why these events are very important. And the University of Bath, of course, has a strong track record in this already. And I'm very proud, and it's been a pleasure and a humbling experience for me, as I've joined relatively recently just to learn how much is going on. For example, in the Faculty of Engineering and Design, our work with the Ford Motor Company has improved turbine machinery design and evaluation methods. And this has contributed to a new engine design which delivers annual CO2 savings significantly larger than our current total emissions for the university. Plastic microbeads were banned from shower gels and toothpaste in the UK, but are still present in other products. Researchers, nonetheless, in our Centre for Sustainable and Chemical Technologies have been developing biodegradable microbeads made from cellulose in an attempt to reduce the estimated 30,000 tonnes of microplastics ending up in our world's oceans every year. Some of these, of course, as you well know, are eaten by marine life passing the food chain and ending up in our plates. The change in climate and the way we use land has led to an increase in extreme flooding events, and this impacts the way we use resources, such as water supplies, 
and recreation sites. In our Water, Environment and Infrastructure Resilience Unit, we conduct research into developing the engineering tools to mitigate these impacts. In other parts of the university, we're conducting research into sustainable power distribution, looking at ways to make crops more resilient uh, to changing weather, mapping the behaviour of icebergs using underwater acoustics, and modelling the economic impacts of climate change to help businesses plan for the future. Our work is wide-ranging, but these are just a few examples. However, there's so much more to be done. And at Bath, we'll continue to build a body of research in the areas of climate and sustainability across our disciplines. We'll also support the education of the next generation of leaders in engineering, science, business, policy, and beyond. And as a community of more than 20,000 people, we'll continue to think strategically about how we travel and about how we consume energy and resources. Tonight sees the inaugural lecture in our new event series, The Future is in Our Lands. This series seeks to address the fundamental issues of how we use and manage our land, the future of UK farming, and how we can increase and protect the range of biodiversity in our ecosystems, whilst providing nutritious, sustainable food for our nation. It will provide an opportunity not just for academics, but also for policymakers, the agriculture sector, the media, and the public to engage in an important discussion, which we hope leads to real outcomes. We must continue to learn from one another and thereby, of course, to engage when tackling the climate crisis. And so that's why I'm so pleased to welcome so much expertise in this audience and, of course, outstanding expertise of Craig Bennett to share your knowledge and experience to us all. I'd now like to invite Professor Nick Pierce, Director of the University's Institute for Policy Research, to tell us more about Craig and Friends of the Earth. I Thank hope you. you find it a very thought-provoking and fulfilling experience. Thank you. Well, um, Thank you very much indeed, uh, Vice-Chancellor, and I, I also want to add my welcome to you all on behalf of IPR this evening. It's great to see uh, so many of you here this evening for the first in this new lecture series. I'm going to briefly introduce Craig for you. He's Chief Executive of Friends of the Earth. He's Honorary Professor of Sustainability and Innovation at Alliance Man Manchester Business School at the University of Manchester. He has been described as one of the country's top environmental campaigners, and by The Guardian, no less, as the very model of a modern eco-general. Uh, we no longer have to be eco-warriors, we can be eco-generals, and Craig is one of those. Um, he's started a, a, as a CEO of Friends of the Earth in 2015, having been for five years prior to that the director of its policy and campaigns, and under his leadership, as people I'm sure will have seen, Friends of the Earth has led the fight against fracking, the reversal of the bee population decline in our country, and of course campaigning for uh, clean air with some considerable success in recent years. This evening he joins us as the Vice-Chancellor indicated to talk about the future of land use and landscapes in the UK, particularly about tree cover and how we can increase tree cover in the UK, restoring important ecosystems, peat bogs, wetlands and other functioning ecosystems and putting nature back into our towns and our cities 
uh, all of which is essential for solving our climate change problems and the ecological emergency that we face. And of course, it may also be good for our health and well-being as human beings as well. Uh, before we begin, I just need to let you all know that this lecture is being recorded, so filming and photography will take place. Please do switch your mobiles off or on silent. And of course, although I appreciate that not everyone can stay until the, till the end of tonight's event, if you do need to leave early, please wait until the end of the presentation and make your way out quietly. There will be an opportunity for Q&A. After Craig mm. has spoken to us, I'll come back up and I'll chair a Q&A session so that we can all get lots of questions and debate in. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me in joining Craig Bennett. Craig. Well, thank you very much uh, for those introductions and thank you very much for the invitation to come here to the University of Bath today to kick off uh, the, uh, this amazing series of lectures, uh, The Future is in Our Lands. You know, when uh, I was invited to come and they, they asked me, they said that there's this whole series of lectures we're putting together here on this subject. Uh, what would you like the title of your particular lecture to be? And I thought, well, that's such a good title already. Um, can I have that, please? So you, you can see, I've just taken that, and I thought, well, if I'm the very first lecture, surely I can get away with that and try and give a big, broad overview picture. And so that's what I hope to do tonight, is uh, in later lectures in this series, it will dive into much greater detail about the specifics of agricultural policy or the specifics of rewilding and so on. And I really do encourage you to come to those because they look to me like great great lectures and I know some of the speakers um, uh, you'll have a great time if you come to those but tonight what I really hope to do is offer you a really big picture vision of what the UK in particular could look like uh, if we started to get serious about tackling the climate and ecological emergency and as just been said to do that in a way that brings so many other benefits for our lives on top of that. Well, why are we finding ourselves in this situation? Why is it that we're, we're suddenly having to think about big, big changes to the world? I'm not going to go into the detail of it because you and millions of other people really understand just how serious the situation is now. It's funny, isn't it, where leadership comes from in society these days. I think the most extraordinary model and personification of leadership over the last few years has come from a Swedish schoolgirl aged 16. Uh, with no authority, no, no uh, official authority or hierarchy in there, but just demonstrating what needs to be done and leading the world into really recognising that and leading millions of school students around the world to have demonstrate that they've got a much more grown-up approach to tackling the climate emergency than us grown-ups. A lot to learn from them. And so when we talk about the future, the future is in our lands. The future we need to be talking about is a, is a future that's safe for this generation, this generation alive today. Often, too often when we're talking about climate change, we talk about future generations. Actually, we're only talking here about the generation that's already alive and within their lives. Now, a lot is said about climate change. Sometimes things are, are said not, not quite right. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, we've only got 10 years uh, before everyone dies and things like that. That's not quite right, okay? But actually, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when it published its 1.5 degrees report last year, did say we've got only a window of about a decade, perhaps or two, to actually cut emissions fast enough to stop climate change perhaps moving into a runaway state where we can't control it. So they didn't say that we're all going to die in 10 years' time. 
But what they did say is the need for us to take action, is, and really big action, is within the next 10 years if we have any hope of avoiding runaway climate change and the very, very serious implications of that. So what does all that mean for the whole climate story? What does that mean for really tr the action we need to take on that? Well, at Friends of the Earth, we've done a lot of work over the last few years to try and boil it down into some very, very simple areas and summaries. And this is the summary of our climate action plan. You'll find it on our website, and we've identified that it really groups into six bold areas of the action that needs to be taken to solve this climate emergency. And I'm sure many of you will be very familiar with them. We need to drastically cut emissions from transport sector, from the power sector, from buildings. We need to make sure that all new infrastructure as of today is there actually helping us reduce emissions rather than making it worse. We need to make sure that we have a real international approach to this and delivering international justice and for a rich country where the Industrial Revolution started, make sure we're doing it in a way that also means we have regard to our historic emissions and historic responsibilities. But one of the absolute top key areas is around agriculture and land use. And it's interesting because I think historically in the climate change debate it's not had perhaps as much attention as it should do. Perhaps when you see pollution belching from chimneys or from car exhausts, maybe that's more obvious to look at. But more and more, it's becoming clear just how incredibly important agriculture and land use is. And that's what we'll focus on. And in case you missed it, earlier this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also published this report, specifically looking at climate change and land. And as ever with these reports, there's extraordinary information in there. But really the headlines, two biggest headlines of it are this, that agriculture, forestry and other types of land use account for 23% of human greenhouse gas emissions. What that tells you is we cannot hope to solve and address the climate emergency unless we tackle the land use issue. But secondly, at the same time, natural land processes absorb carbon dioxide equivalent to almost a third of carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels and industry. Just to put this into perspective a little bit, bear in mind that around the time of the, just before the Industrial Revolution, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were around 280 parts per million. As of today, they're around 420 parts per million. To stabilise the climate, we almost certainly need to get it back down to below at least 350. So actually stopping all emissions would be a great thing. Even if we had a magic wand here tonight and stopped all future emissions, that would be a great thing. But we are going to have to suck some carbon dioxide out the air as well. And that's where land use comes into play. And that's where restoring nature, and particularly the abundance of nature and our ecosystem processes, becomes so important. But when we have this discussion, and particularly in the context of the UK, people will say, restoring nature? Planting trees, all of those kind of things. That takes a lot of land. Aren't we a crowded island? 60, 65 million people living on this tiny island off the west coast of Europe. We've got no space for it here. Surely we can only talk about that in big countries and big continents. But I wonder what your image is, your perspective is, of actually what the UK looks like. We all have our image of it, but most of us live in towns or cities. 
How many of us actually have a really good sense of what the UK looks like? And that's something we've been wondering for a while. And then we met this guy, Dan Raven Ellison, who calls himself a guerrilla geographer. And I consider myself a geographer. I would love to consider myself a guerrilla geographer, but he got that title first. He makes this point very clearly to us. He said, I don't think anyone really has a clue what Britain actually looks like. It's just too big and complicated for us to get a proper sense of proportion. And that's a real problem, because when people are making decisions about how we feed ourselves or how much more affordable housing we can build, or crucially about how more space for nature we can have, how can we do that if we don't have a good sense of really what Britain looks like? And so he came up with this wonderful idea and talked to us about producing a film, just a 100-second film, looking at the UK from above, with each second in the film representing 1% of the land use type. So we worked with him to produce that film. And we also got Benjamin Zafaniah, the poet, asked him if he'd narrate it, and he said yes. So here it is. What does the United Kingdom really look like? To get a better sense of proportion, let's go on a 100-second walk across our nation. Each second of the walk reveals 1% of our lands and how they look from above. Are you ready for the UK in 100 seconds? We walk through 22 kinds of land that are gone in a blink. Houses and gardens occupy 5% of the UK and 5 seconds of our walk. We spend 6 seconds crossing natural grassland and wander for seven over sheep, grazed moors and heathlands. Peat bogs, which are carbon stores, are something else. Together, they cover 9% of the nation. And for 10 seconds, we're in the woods, and there's no place I'd rather be. For 27 seconds, we walk through fields of crops. Half is fed to livestock. In June, we mostly grow wheat, barley, oil seeds, peas and beans, corn, oats, and vegetables. Our last 28% and 28 seconds takes us through pastures. This, the single biggest use of land, is mostly used for feeding and rearing cows and sheep. In all, at a time when more than one in 10 British species are at risk of extinction, do we need to rethink this mix of lands we have and how we use them? I need more trees, please. I think more nature would be greater. So what if we made more space for nature? So there's the cast list in order of appearance. <clears throat> Any surprises there? Anyone? Any sort of reactions? Anything that really astonished you there? A lot of bog. A lot of bog. <laughs> and it's lovely. Sorry? 
small area of development. Yeah, it's the, our urban areas are much, much smaller than people think they are. Much, much smaller as a percentage. Anything else? The amount of pasture, yeah. 28 seconds, 28% of our land, the biggest land use type is for pasture, for rearing cattle and, and sheep. Amazing. And did you also get that 13 seconds, so half, 26% for growing food, but half of that is given to animals, to feed to animals as well. So, next time people tell you, well, there's no land left, well, it all depends, doesn't it? It depends on how we choose to use it. What should it look like? Well, as Friends of the Earth, we launched a campaign this summer to call for a doubling of tree cover in the UK. And we did that for all kinds of reasons that will benefit nature, of course, but also to help deal with the climate. I mentioned before that we need to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We need to suck carbon dioxide out of the air. And there's all kinds of people that are starting to talk about inventing machines that can do this for us, but they don't <coughs> exist yet and they're going to be really expensive. Or we could use those amazing machines that have existed for hundreds of millions of years and do the job very well, and they do it for free. They're called trees. And what we'd love to see at Friends of the Earth is a doubling of tree cover. So at the moment, tree cover in the UK is around 13% of our land mass. If we doubled it to 26%, that would still be below the European average of 35%. But guess what? If we doubled tree cover in the UK, that would suck carbon out of the air equivalent to 10% of the UK's current emissions. Absolutely astonishing. And think of all the other benefits we'd ha have. Think of the benefits, yes, for nature, but also for flood alleviation. Particularly if the trees are sort of in our cities and built up areas as well, we know that helps us in adapting to climate as well. Huge, huge benefits, improving soils and so on. So we think we should double UK tree cover. But how on earth can we do that? That's such a lovely idea, isn't it? But surely, how can we find the space to do that? Well, our researchers have been working through this and what is absolutely critical is that we have to change our diets. We have to reduce the amount of meat we eat. I say that someone that eats meat. We're not saying here that everyone should go veggie completely or vegan. If you want to do that, fantastic, please do. That will definitely help the planet. But actually, if you can just eat far less but better meat, that can make a huge, huge difference. And what we've assumed here is that if the UK cut its meat consumption in half, which, by the way, would save the NHS lots of money because it would improve our health as well, and the meat we get, the other meat we get is good quality meat, then actually we can do this. And how do we do that? Well, because if we look at agricultural land, there's lots of different grades of agricultural land. So the government understands grades one to five. Grades one to three are the highest quality agricultural land that we need for growing crops directly for people to eat. Not for biofuels, not for feeding cows and so on, but directly for humans to eat. If we use grades one to three for that, and also we leave grade five, which is a good proxy for peat bogs, we don't want to touch them and grow trees there, then actually what you've got left is grade four agricultural land, which is pretty low quality agricultural land in the scheme of things. And a lot of that is very well suited for us to have an increase in tree cover. Some of that would be through planting, tree planting, but also we should allow a lot from natural regeneration. 
particularly in some of the more upland areas. Because the extraordinary thing about natural ge generation is you know you get the right tree in the right place. And all these kind of areas, if you go to, if you go to some of the uplands, all these kind of gullies, that's still where seeds of trees will be found, hiding away, even if there hasn't been woodland there for centuries. There will still be seeds there and you'll be able to see uh, the woodlands come back. So we've done this calculation and we've also recognised the huge benefits to us as humans if we can have more proximity to nature. So actually what we need to do is, is give priority to doubling tree cover near where people live, around our towns and cities, and on that grade four agricultural land nearest our towns and cities. So what we did is we overlaid all that. We overlaid the priority places uh, for England, uh, according to the Forestry Commission for uh, tree planting, with grade four agricultural land, and put a particular emphasis on urban areas. And this gives us a rough idea. It's only indicative. Don't get too excited if you see a blob in a place where you think that doesn't work for you. But it's only indicative. But we calculate that through that approach, it can be done. You would be able to double tree cover and still feed people in this country with good, high-quality, locally-grown food. But crucially, we'd make more space for nature. We'd have more trees. And what's really exciting, as I said, is how you can do that close to where people live. This isn't just about putting conifers, this isn't about conifers in the, in the Scottish uplands, we don't want that. This is about dramatically increasing tree cover here in the lowlands where people live. What we want to see is in every English region a local climate forest that people can visit and have benefit from recreational reasons as well, but actually really starts to move on on creating some large-scale ecosystem restoration in every English region and in Wales and in Northern Ireland and of course Scotland as well but in many many other areas as well because it's so critical that we give people that connection to nature again did you know that the evidence has been there for decades that from people recovering in hospitals from an operation they recover much faster if they've got sight of nature and particularly if they've got views of trees. They only need a little glimpse of it and people will recover quicker from those operations than actually if they can only can see a brick wall through the window. Astonishing isn't it? It reminds us that we're all hardwired to enjoy and need that connection with nature. It's amazing to think that our hospitals would be much better hospitals in their own terms if they looked a bit more like nature reserves. And some of the most modern hospitals are being designed around the world along those, those needs. So it's really quite extraordinary. But we need this kind of everywhere. So the other thing that we've started a discussion on, and I invite you to go on our website, look for this, and join the debate, because there's a whole load of processes there that they, we want to hear people's ideas on this, is one of the ways we should do this is green the green belt. Because let's face it, a lot of green belt at the moment is not really very green, really. It is perhaps agricultural land, but often you can't get to it very easily. Often it hasn't actually got much wildlife in it. It's just there as a planning zone. Wouldn't it be nice to green the green belt? And we're after all of your ideas about how we can do that. But let's just consider a bit of a thought experiment on that. I was saying that if we were to double tree cover in the UK, the astonishing thing was is that would suck carbon out the air equivalent to 10% of the UK's emissions current emissions. So taking that just as a kind of yardstick as a baseline for now, 
Wouldn't it be amazing if Bath, how many trees would you need to plant or allow for the natural regeneration around Bath to make sure that is going to suck carbon out of the air equivalent to 10% of Bath's emissions? What would it look like to have a truly rewilded greenbelt around in Bath and in the local vicinity? What would that look like? The other thing that's interesting is that if you properly green the greenbelt, you're more likely to keep it, I would suggest, as well, rather than it being lost to housing at some point in the future. We could also have designation wild belt, couldn't we? That'd be quite a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Let's actually restore our ecosystem processes. Let's have designations like wild belt to connect up our otherwise fragmented nature reserves and so on. Actually start restoring nature and we're putting nature into recovery rather than just trying to slow the decline. But I'm not just talking about big areas that are purely forest. We want to see trees, more trees, pretty much everywhere where it's appropriate for trees to be. And one of those actually would be in our farmland areas. So agroforestry is a technique that's been known for years about growing trees, sometimes planting trees or enabling trees to regenerate alongside and around our farms. And it has huge benefits for that. Again, it helps deal with, uh, help reduce soil erosion, help deal with flood alleviation and flood prevention, but also very important for soil fertility and so on. And you know, an interesting thing is a lot of us now think of the word forest. We think that that has to mean an area of dense trees. That's what we kind of all assume. But actually, in historic terms, that's not what it meant at all. It meant an area where there were a lot of trees, but there would be open patches and areas where also there was uh, people using farmland as well. So if we could see much more, uh, a much greater approach of use of agroforestry across our farmland in the UK, and with agricultural reform coming, if there were sort of payments to support farmers to do that, then we reckon that would provide yet more uh, woodland areas and tree cover. And some of that could be used for commercial purposes as well, which I'll come into that. But of course it would help provide more habitat for our wildlife as well. And that's nice for those of us that like wildlife. But we also shouldn't forget that there's actually a lot of carbon in nature. Restoring the abundance of nature is another brilliant way of sucking carbon out of the air. Maybe not with owls. There's not going to be that many owls that do that. But actually just insects. If we restore the abundance of our insects, that does add up to a lot of carbon over time. And think about this. Where did all carbon go in the ice ages after all? You know, it went into the biosphere, that's where it went, and then eventually into the deep oceans. So this is what nature has done for millennia. We just need to make sure the carbon is going back into nature rather than thinking we need to machines to do it. So climate emergency, yes, more trees please, critical response to doing that. But it's worth saying it's not just woodlands, it's not just trees that we need. We also need to protect our peatlands, and I'm very pleased someone got excited about peatlands when you saw the film earlier, because I get very excited about peatlands, which you'll see if you look at my Twitter profile and the picture above it. Um, peatlands are an incredibly important habitat in this country, and very important not just for wildlife and for protecting our watersheds and our water supplies, but also unbelievably important as a carbon store. But our peatlands in this country at the moment are in crisis. And this little film from our investigations unit shows you why.
sitting on a grass moor in uh, Yorkshire, and as you can see, the ground behind me has been burned to manage for grass. People think of our uplands as being a, a natural place, a wild place, but that couldn't be further from the truth. This is a heavily managed environment. So I guess I guess the first thing we'll do is we'll just we'll just head up um, onto Barton and um, we can come up here and maybe head up this track a little bit, which gives quite a good view over the valley and see if there's any burning going on. We've just been up onto moorland, looking for evidence of moorland burning, and we've just seen some in the distance, and we're just trying to find it now. We're trying to track it down. Uh, find out which estate it's on and get up and see if we can get any closer. There's a huge amount of land in England that's covered in grouse moors and uh, about half a million acres, which is about the size of Greater London. Um, it's an enormous part of our uplands um, and the impact of grouse moors and the burning of grouse moors aren't really fully appreciated. See it right in front there, look, there we go. That's that is moorland burning taking place, burning of the heather, making a, an environment that is ideal for grouse, but not so good for most other things. Burning is done to maximise the numbers of grouse for shooting, but that has massive ecological impacts. The deep peat that lies beneath this moor is being dried out. The huge amounts of carbon that we have stored within our peat bogs is being slowly released into the atmosphere, worsening climate change, and also making this landscape less resilient to the impacts of more extreme weather. Grass moors have a huge impact on wildlife of the uplands because they're basically being managed from monoculture. Gamekeepers will shoot, poison, kill other species that predate upon grouse, and that has big impacts on the rest of the ecosystem. This moorland is part of the Grimwith estate, just north of Grimwith Reservoir. Um, we're pretty sure that this estate has entered into a voluntary agreement to stop moorland burning, but actually what we see behind this is clear evidence of the moorland going up in flames. It's not something that we think is meant to be happening here, and we're going to be investigating further. So this is um, where we were earlier, just loaded this up on Google Maps, and this is the pin that I put down to show where we were and fairly clearly see that it's uh, grass small from the uh, satellite imagery. This is the maps from DEFRA naturally and they would show pretty clearly that this area is listed as blanket bog. This and some land ownership information we've got. Um, strongly points to this being the Grimwith Estate, um, which I guess is something which was corroborated by the fact that we saw the logo for the Grimwith Estate on the side of the van that the gamekeeper had driven up there to carry out the burning. The Grimwith Estate is one of the estates that um, seems to have signed up to a voluntary agreement with the government earlier this year to cease burning on moorland. And yet we saw very clear evidence yeah. that they were burning on blanket bog, which is meant to be ruled out by this agreement. So that 
<coughs> investigation, we shared that with the media and particularly it was shown on BBC Country File earlier in the year. Uh, and loads of other organisations have been campaigning on this as well to stop the peatland burn, everything from RSPB to uh, key individuals in the wildlife area and so on. I'm very pleased to say that just two weeks ago in Parliament, the Minister Zach Goldsmith stood up and he did say it was the government's intention to ban uh, peatland burning, which will be a huge success. We're obviously now pushing the government to commit to legislate for that. There's this little complication of a general election in the way. <laughs> Um, but we're trying to make sure we get that ban legislated as soon as we possibly can in January. Because the extraordinary thing is, is our incredible peat bogs in this country, which are the tropical rainforest of the UK, if you like, they should be a net sink for carbon in this country. But at the moment, what's coming out of our peat bogs is the same amount of carbon equivalent to all the oil refineries in the UK. And it's just because of this kind of practice and degraded peat bogs also drying up in erosion and so on. It's a simple thing to stop. It's a controversial thing to stop, for reasons you could probably guess. But uh, it's absolutely essential we do that. So what I've talked to you about so far is doubling tree cover, fixing the peat bogs. Conceptually, at least, they're pretty easy to do. And they can be done for very little money as well. There's all these other things we've got to do. Of course we do. And you know that Friends of the Earth talks about it, about how we've got to cut emissions from transport, cut emissions from industry and so on. But how is it that this hasn't received nearly the land use implications, hasn't received nearly as much attention in the climate debate over the last few years? It is a big problem that so many of us, including many in the environmental movement, have separated out climate change as one issue and what's happening in the ecological crisis as a separate issue. They are not separate issues. They're two symptoms of the same problem. And let's be really clear, we're not going to fix one unless we fix the other. So in this country, we absolutely have to try and model and show how that can be done. It's also worth saying, and I don't have a sexy video for this one, but it's worth saying about salt marshes as well. There's so many other habitats important. Salt marshes are another incredibly important habitat for sucking carbon out the air. <coughs> And if we can restore salt marshes around the country, again, that helps with flood defence, creates wildlife habitat and so on. The potential is absolutely huge. And it's worth saying, I'm giving you broad brush uh, uh, picture here, but there are other organisations that are really working on the details. So many of you will know about the Wildlife Trusts and their local work. They've done some brilliant work looking at trying to identify in particular areas where there should be networks for nature recovery. This is their plan around the town of Wells, showing the areas that are going to be most important to protect to now restoration and recovery of nature there. So across all these organisations, we're putting together a very clear picture about how this can be done. And don't let anyone tell you it can't be done, because it can be done, and it will be much better for us in all kinds of other ways as well. And I can't possibly ever do a presentation without a picture of a bee in it, it's worth saying also that to enable that to happen, we've got to look at other areas as well, like reducing pesticide use. You know, we use far more pesticide and fertiliser in this country than we need to. We reckon you could cut pesticide use in about half in this country at least and actually have pretty much the same food production. But the restoration of our pollinators and other species would be incredibly important. So that's all part of the picture as well. So I've talked a little bit about, very specifically, about that that area of agriculture and land use. But now I just want to touch on a couple of the others and how 
actually land use issues are really important in delivering those and can be affected by how we solve those as well. Talk about transport to start off with. Now, some people will sort of say, we know we've got to cut emissions from transport, we've got to do this. The scandalous thing, and it is a scandal, is that transport is actually the only sector of the UK economy where emissions are still growing at the moment. It's ludicrous because we know, we've known for decades how to turn this around and reduce emissions from transport, and yet they're still growing. And you might say, ah, oh, but we shouldn't worry about that. We've got electric cars on the way. That's going to be lovely, won't it? And electric cars will be very important, you know. Stopping, ending the sale of petrol and diesel cars, which the government has pledged to do by 2040, but it needs to happen much sooner. Norway's going to stop selling petrol and diesel cars in 2025. India's sort of committed to stopping selling them by 2030. If Norway and India can do it, why can't the UK do it by 2040 as well? Uh, and amazingly, I was at an event the other day where I was debating the chair of Shell. Um, and I put her on the spot and she said she agreed with me and that we should stop selling petrol and diesel cars by 2030. I've invited her to take out big adverts in the papers during the general election campaign <coughs> to say that and we'll see whether she does or not. But anyway, um, that's not going to be enough though. It's going to be very useful but actually, if we're going to cut emissions from our transport sector as much as we need to, we also need to reduce the amount of traffic on the road. We need, we estimate, a 20% reduction in traffic on the road in the UK to meet our carbon emissions, even with vehicles going over to uh, electric vehicles. And that means, particularly in our towns and cities, a revolution in how people get around. Now, in Bath and Bristol, my understanding is you're not too bad on this. I live in Cambridge, I work in London. Both we've seen huge improvements there over the last few years in, in supporting what's called modal shifts, in other words, encouraging people to cycle and walk to work and use public transport. But again, what's our yardstick? Is our yardstick of how British cities were five years ago, or is our yardstick perhaps European cities like Copenhagen? Or indeed cities around the world, where there's 300 cities around the world, including 30 in the United States, where all public transport, oh, sorry, all use of buses is completely free. Think of the transformation that would deliver. If they can do it in 30 cities in the United States, why not here? If our cities and towns and cities looked a bit more like Copenhagen, all of us would cycle and walk and use public transport a lot more than we currently do. And guess what? Yet again, that would be good for our health and good for our community and for the po poorest and most vulnerable people in society that would benefit most from it. At the moment, however, sadly, government transport policy is still obsessed with the car and is taking away green space from communities and people that absolutely need it. I'm going to give you an example that has absolutely shocked me. This is a very live issue. Um, I was in Liverpool last year and I was giving a talk rather like this perhaps and at the end some people came up to me and they're in tears talking about how they were going to lose their local urban green space to a highway, a new highway being built through it. And they invited me when next time I came back to Liverpool to go and have a look and I did earlier this year and it is a shocking story. What I'm going to talk to you about is Rimrose Valley. So this is Liverpool and in North Liverpool to the north if you see is that working? No, if you see that green bit, you see by the word Litherland, you see that nice, long, thin urban park there? That's Rimrose Valley. 
And in the late 1990s, it was basically a, a, somewhere people were dumping, you know, shopping trolleys. It wasn't being used. But then with lots of uh, millennium money and funding from the EU, uh, at, yeah, I thought I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> they turned it into this amazing, long, thin urban park. And it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Beautiful space. Anyway, Highways England thought, well, that's a nice place to put a new dual carriageway to get freight, in particular, in and out of uh, the, new, the, the expanded port of Liverpool. I find it absolutely extraordinary that anyone would think that's a good idea. We know of the chronic problem of air pollution in this country. 40,000 people dying prematurely every year because of air pollution in this country. Those are the government's actual statistics, their own official statistics. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine if it was being caused by someone other than us. Imagine if that was being caused by a foreign dictator. 40,000 Brits dying prematurely each year. And imagine if the government's response to this foreign dictator causing the premature deaths of 40,000 Brits every year was, we've got a plan in place to solve this in the next 20 years. How do you think the Daily Mail would respond to that? <laughs> so actually what's, very, what's absolutely astonishing is the idea to take, essentially destroy this beautiful urban space, urban green space, take it away from the local community, cut the community in half, by building this. This absolutely has to be stopped. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that we value green space so low? You know, would, they, would Highways England dream of saying that they should knock down one of Liverpool's beautiful cathedrals to make space for a new dual carriageway? No, they wouldn't. Why is it they think it's okay to put a dual carriageway through this beautiful bit of urban space? This absolutely has to be stopped, and the key decisions on this are coming up in the next few months. Unfortunately, it's not alone. There's hundreds of these schemes across this country being planned. This is Arundel in West Sussex. And the green bit you see there is South Downs National Park. And what they're planning, Highways England, a bypass there, is one that would plough through ancient woodland in the South Downs National Park to save a couple of minutes of journey. Now, I don't know if you know, but Arundel's very famous for the most astonishing castle. It's a very impressive castle. Again, would Highways England ever think of knocking down the Arundel Castle to make way for a dual carriageway? They're saying, don't worry about the ancient woodland, they're going to create some new habitat somewhere else. It takes a thousand years for that ancient woodland to form. That ancient woodland's older than the castle. What they're proposing is the equivalent of destroying that castle and replacing it with a fiberglass version down on the south coast. We have to start seeing our precious wildlife habitats as a line in the sand that cannot be destroyed. This is not, cannot be negotiated. And particularly ancient woodland. <coughs> so then let's talk about this monstrosity, HS2. This is going to go through over 100 ancient woodlands. Now, Friends of the Earth, it's been an interesting one for us, HS2, because instinctively, of course, we like rail and we instinctively like high-speed rail. And we've joined with other environmental organisations to talk about high-speed rail can be done well. HS2 is not an example of doing high-speed rail well. It's an example of doing it very, very badly. And, of course, it will be very, very costly. Latest estimate is probably around 100 billion quid to build HS2 to, again, knock a few minutes off a journey time. And I don't know about you, when I'm on trains, I don't want them to be too short, actually. That's when I, the only time I really get laptop work done, so... <laughs> It's a real problem. Um, 
But the point is, imagine if you could take that 100 billion quid, and that would easily pay for turning every town and city in this country to have a transport infrastructure more like Copenhagen. So that's our kind of choice. You can have one high-speed line, or you could transform transport into sustainable transport right across this country. Which should it be? I think the answer is very clear. So all of these areas have implications for our land use as well. Take about buildings. What are the implications there? Well, this is what's happened to emissions from buildings in this country. You see that big drop from residential uh, towards the start of this decade. Any ideas what predominantly caused that? It's a really big success story. Recession had something to do. It's not solar panels, no. I'd love to say it was. No, it's something really mundane, but it shows how small things can make a huge difference. N no. Well, I mean, that's all put in there, but the biggest reduction there is the switch from old conventional boilers to combi-condensing boilers. Uh, where that happened in the millions, actually, we've seen that success of that reducing emissions. You can see the public sector didn't bother to change their boilers. They still got really old ones. But actually, it shows what can be done through relatively small things. And, and you know, any of us got a combi-condensing boiler? Do we feel that it works less well? I feel mine works better than the old one. So it just goes to show it's not about having a lower quality life or anything like that. But the potential in our building sector here to even help what we talked about before is huge. But we've got to focus on energy efficiency. And we've been absolutely useless in this country on energy efficiency, promoting it over the last decade. Now, excuse the words, but they're not mine. They're David Cameron's, if you remember. Uh, and this is the number of uh, energy efficiency upgrades in this country since he said that, and that appeared on the front page of The Sun, and that's what's happened to energy efficiency upgrades ever since. Yeah? So we're not going to solve the climate crisis unless we revert that. So we absolutely need to see a big programme to deliver a massive overhaul in energy efficiency in that, this country. Now, why is this all relevant to the land? Because in actual fact, we should be using timber much more as a building material than we do now. You know, concrete steel, these are all carbon intensive. And we could and should be using timber, sustainably sourced timber, a lot more in creating new buildings and even in retrofit to produce really highly efficient, energy efficient houses and natural materials in other ways to produce very highly efficient housing. So part of our thing about doubling tree cover here is also that yes, we would want to see some commercial plantations in places, well managed, in the right places, not in the wrong places. But again, they could be done in a good way, where they provide new opportunities for recreation as well. So that's part of the solution to this as well. And then we're not bringing in timber from abroad so much, and actually we're, we're using timber more in our buildings rather than concrete and steel all the time. You'd still need a bit of concrete and steel, depending on what you're building, of course, but we could use a lot more timber. So it just shows that the interactions between these stories, and I could give you so many more, are absolutely key. Now, how are we going to make this happen? Well, we see the solution to this is through community action. It's pretty much always been true in politics, but it's certainly true right now that just sitting back and giving politicians the science and evidence and reason and logic about what needs to be done, unfortunately, that's never been enough. That's why we need to campaign, and that's why communities need to mobilise to bring about these big changes. So at Friends of the Earth, we want to empower every community and every individual in this country to be able to take their action to help with this whole agenda. 
One of the ways we've made it easy for you to do that is this postcode lookup tool. So on our website, you can type in your postcode and find out how well your local authority is doing on climate change. I thought I'd make it easy for you <laughs> and do this one. And Bath and North East Somerset actually came out kind of middling in our lead table of local authorities in this country. So they've done some good things, but could do better, was our uh, conclusion. If you want to know how they're doing, well, 8% of Bath and North East Somerset is woodland. So that's actually below the national average. It's even below the average for England, which is 10%. And if you go on the website, you'll see a lot more information. You can access, access the raw data that was used to create this and interact with it and have a look yourself. And crucially, you can click on, what can I do to help? And you'll see there that that's where we're encouraging people to form or join climate action groups across the country to come together in their community, host a meeting, and work with us and our big toolkits about how to take action in your local authority. We've had over 100 new climate action groups form this year alone. It's incredibly exciting to see this huge momentum of activity and activism in local authorities up and down this country, in, lo in local communities up and down this country. So if you're interested in that, please, please go to the website and get involved. And our intention then is, of course, with hundreds and hundreds of communities trying to get climate action plans in their own local area and in towns and cities across this country, then we can also, towards the second half of next year, try and make sure the national government, whoever's running that at the time, puts in place a climate action plan for the country as a whole. And there's a very good reason to do that, because in next November, the UK is hosting in Glasgow the next big huge climate change summit. And wouldn't it be nice, in fact, wouldn't it be essential that when we host the whole world to come to the UK in November 2020 to talk about climate change, that we've got our own house in order? In local communities, in towns and cities, right across the country, and crucially, at national level as well. Then we have a chance of taking back tomorrow and actually making sure we really, if you like, take back control, but of our future here, our future in escaping the climate and ecological emergency, and making sure that Britain, the UK, is absolutely playing its part in doing that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Craig. I thought it was fantastic, the connection between argument and action, between uh, policy and campaign, the things that you can do in your community. Lots to discuss and debate. We've got um, microphones that can go around to pick up uh, uh, what you have to say. So if you'd like just to put your hand up, uh, ask some questions, uh, please do fire ahead. So I'll start over here and I'll come down here. Yeah. I'm completely on board with everything you're saying. I just have a very quick question for you, which is um, I live in a small village just outside of Bath, and as a community, we've been looking at ways to green our community more, make some biodiversity corridors, um, plant more trees. Particularly important because we're on limestone, so up to 70% of the trees in this area are probably ash. So we're going to lose 95% of our trees. But one of our problems is that the landowners and the farmers aren't that keen on helping. Have you, have you got any strategies or have your teams thought about how maybe to encourage this 
uptake of tree planting or...? Yeah. or sure. So, um, well, a couple of things to say there. First of all, well done for what you're doing, uh, because it's absolutely through that kind of local campaigning that makes a difference. People often will say to me, oh, what can I do? And it's not actually for me to prescribe for each one of you what you can do, because you will know better, actually, what's the most important thing to do in your local community than me trying to tell you uh, exactly what the answer is. We give you loads of briefings and support on the Friends yes website and through our regional staff and so on to help you on it, uh, but you'll know what's the best opportunity to do that, and you'll be motivated by some things and not by others. I want to just mention the ash thing is really important, because actually there's a connection there with trade deals, which a lot of people might not make. Um, ash, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the disease that ash is uh, affecting at the moment came in from abroad, and it almost certainly came in on imported ash, and there's absolutely no need for us to be importing ash saplings into this country. And it's incredibly important with any new trade deals that the UK strikes in the future that they have the highest biosecurity standards in them to make sure that we don't have pests and diseases coming into our land, uh, into our countryside through that. But your real question about landowners, of course, a lot of it will depend on, it depends on the landowners and their own personal persuasion, but also about the, the policies, the agricultural policies about will help that. And of course, we are likely to see a big overhaul of agricultural policy in this country. Uh, just before Parliament was, um, uh, what's the word? Dis I was going to say dismissed, that's dissolved. not the word, you know what I mean. Thank you. Dissolved. That's the word I couldn't think of. Uh, when Parliament's dissolved, there was an uh, uh, agricultural bill going through Parliament, uh, and that stopped now, so it'd be for the new government to pick it up and to put that policy in place. We do need to see, rather than money going to uh, farming for land ownership, we need to see it going for public goods. So what all the environmental organisations have been saying is what has to be fundamental with any new agricultural policy is that if any public money is going to be used to subsidise, it should be subsidising what's a public good. And that means environmental benefit in particular and restoring nature. And then you'll see changes in behaviour, I think, by the landowners. It's also worth saying, though, and I'm not about... I'm ne I would never sit here and defend the common agricultural policy, but it's worth also saying that a lot of the things that are being talked about now could easily have been done under the common agricultural policy as well. And, and right now, given we're not quite sure what's going to happen, around that word that I'm not going to mention. Um, it's important to remember there's been some really good thinking going over the last two, three years about what agricultural policy should look like in the future. A lot of it can be done whatever happens on the B word. So even if we ended up staying, uh, we should keep that thinking and try and apply it. It's, it absolutely could be done. So ultimately it comes down to change that agricultural policy and then the landowners will think differently. So uh, this is what the exemption of farming land from inheritance, is that what you're... Yeah, because at the moment you don't pay inheritance Well, there's lots of different schools of thought on that, as to whether that's, that, that helps or hinders on, on the kind of measures we're talking about there. There would be some landowners that argue they need the size of the land to be able to deliver some of these measures, and inheritance tax makes it harder for them to do that. There'd be others that would say that if actually you break, the, break it down into smaller ownership over time, that's actually going to break it up and it creates more opportunities for many more of us to manage the land in a way that's good for wildlife. I can't say that it's Friends of the Earth we've modelled or fully understood what the best approach would be. But it's an interesting debate. 
Uh, colleague here, yeah. It's got the mic, yeah. Uh, hi, um, I'm a councillor on uh, Bath and Office Systems Council, and I recently uh, passed a motion on uh, improving tree cover in Baines. Um, and one of the um, key things that I was concerned about when I was researching for that motion um, was native species. So I know we've you just touched what, upon sorry, oh, native, native species. species. Yeah. So I, I know we touched upon uh, ash. But I'm just, and then you said in your um, talk about um, natural tree cover appearing, which is, which is great, but I'm just wondering how we protect native species, because it's not just ash, it's oak and, and various other natural um, trees that aren't as good at self-sowing um, in that way, and how we can uh, best integrate those types of trees. Yeah. So, I mean... We often fall into, again, a false dichotomy of here of, in this debate of thinking that our answer is all natural regeneration or all tree planting. Uh, there'll be some places, some areas, where absolutely what we should do is stand back, let nature do its job, and see what nature provides through natural regeneration. There'll be other places where actually we need, uh, if we want an outcome to be delivered, there's, there's reason for tree planting. Often in many places, what more and more organisations are finding, a combination of the two is sometimes the most effective, particularly for the reasons you're talking about. So sometimes you might have an area where you plant some trees, but pretty dispersed, not in a big compacted area, to sort of get it, get it going and, and start changing the, the habitat and the natural soil quickly enough, but actually leaving space for natural regeneration as well. On your particular point about native species, there are programmes in place on both ash dieback and on the the uh, caterpillar moth that is affecting oak and so on. Uh, and they need a lot of support. There's a lot of organisations like the Woodland Trust doing a lot of really good work in that area. Um, and so it's important to have those. And one of the things that's needed is monitoring. And more and more, you're seeing organisations like the Woodland Trust doing good systems now of, of asking citizens to, when you're out and about, understand what the signs are of something like ash day dieback or caterpillar moth affecting oak and be able to report it and sort of apps are becoming available to do that. So that's really important, then it's easier to look at how it can be solved. But the jury's still out, the research is still going on about how to really deal with uh, uh, these diseases and pests. It's a real problem. And therefore, we've got to make sure we don't introduce any more as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, uh, with respect to um, the suggestion of reducing meat consumption in the UK by 50%, um, Presumably that will go hand in hand with an increase um, of consumption of plant-based protein and also iron, folic acid, all those things. So has anybody done any modelling of the impact of that in terms of you know, possible um, increase in the need for arable farming or increased imports, for example, of soy-based products? Um, what's the ecological impact of yeah. an increase um, in plant-based um, foods? Yeah, I mean, a very good question. The short answer is we need much less land to grow food for humans if what they're eating is plants than if what they're eating is a combination of plants and animals and if they've got a high meat diet. That's the short answer. Again, when you scratch below that, the surface of that, you're absolutely right to say if you're eating soya uh, that is imported from rainforest areas, uh, that's gonna, that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for the environment either. So there's a lot of specifics in all of that. Um, as ever, what we need is locally sourced uh, seasonal food is the very best thing you can do for both your, uh, for your health and also for the planet. And the more that we can move to a food system that promotes that and makes that the norm, uh, 
rather than the exception, uh, the better. Uh, and it's worth saying, since I'm here, and I always say this, it, it, the, the bigger the institution, the more they can play a lead in doing that. So I have no idea how well the University of Bath is doing on its procurement around food, but I would really encourage it. I know many universities are taking a lead of that. For all I know, you're doing brilliantly. Um, and I'm having a nice dinner tonight, so I'll find out. <laughs> um, but it's really, it, I think there's a real leadership role that universities can play in, in helping shape local food procurement as well. I've got, I've got two colleagues with microphones now, and then we're going to go up to the back because we've got two up there. So, colleague here first, and then, then over here. Hello. Um, what is Friends of the Earth doing to try and stop HS2 and air, airport expansion in, in the north, which um, will potentially mm. damage uh, hundreds of ancient woodlands? Yeah, look, the hardest decision we ever have to make at Friends of the Earth, and the ones, one of the few things that does keep me awake at night, is, is the choices we make about our campaigns. Which ones are we going to prioritise and which ones are we going to focus on? Because we can't do everything. We'd absolutely love to and put lots of effort into lots of campaigns, but we absolutely can't do that. And there's no shortage of brilliant campaigns we could be doing. There's a shortage of our capacity and bandwidth and ability to be able to do it well. We are always there trying to support our local groups and local communities on local campaigning, and we've certainly done that around HS2. We have done some campaigning uh, around HS2, but I'm not going to pretend to you that it's been a huge national priority for us. And one of the reasons for that is the, the problem is it's, it's very relevant for people that live on or near the root of it. If you live a very long way from HS2, you're going to be less interested and less likely to get involved in the campaign. So for us to make it a big national priority, isn't going to be quite so uh, effective. We have taken a lot of efforts to try and stop airport expansion. I know you said airports in the north. I'll start first of all with Heathrow, which is not in the north, <laughs> but we are leading the legal case there on climate grounds, the legal challenge on Heathrow. We were in the uh, uh, High Court uh, and then the uh, Court of Appeal very recently, last month, and we're expecting a decision in December on that. And we've said very clearly, the point is there, is if you look at Heathrow's plans and the plans that the government has supported, they absolutely are not compatible with the Paris Agreement. And it's very, very clear that's the case. So we do think Heathrow uh, expansion certainly should be stopped. But if we win that case, it's going to make it much easier to win expansion of other airports across the country as well. And you're right, it's, you know, it's a crucially important issue. Um, yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm going to sort of slightly echo something that uh, was mentioned in the first question, but also um, tries to pull out something in the title of this um, series of talks when we talk about the future is in our lands. And I was glad to see Guy Shropshaw appear in the peat box because I, I don't know if the audience um, will be aware, but he's written a very extraordinary book about who owns our lands in this country. And I think it's a really important question. And I wonder... Um, whether, you know, Friends of the Earth has taken some of um, Guy's work around that to interrogate this question of who does actually own our land. So how much of these decisions and how much of these climate change actions that we need to make are dependent, in fact, on private landowners and their ability to, um, you know, make significant changes in how they think, as, as is the case with, you know, like the grouse and, and the peat bogs. Uh, absolutely right. So yes, Guy, who you saw in that film, Guy Shropsall, he's one of our campaigners in our investigations unit, and um, uh, as well as doing all that kind of stuff that he does for us, he took six months off last year 
to write a book. And he actually finished, started it and finished it in six months, which was amazing. And it's called Who Owns England? It's a, it, I'm told it's an astonishing book. It's been next on my bedside table for two or three months. And I confess, and I'm really embarrassed every time I see Guy, I said, I'm really sorry I haven't started it yet. I've been a bit busy on a few other things. I'm really looking forward to reading it over Christmas break. Uh, but everyone tells me it's a phenomenal book. And uh, so do have a look at it. And as Zach, as you write, Yvonne, uh, a huge, a huge part of this is who owns the land and, the ch and uh, in whose benefit as well. That's the other part of the equation. And it is something we don't debate enough in, in the UK. Uh, and it's a, a, some, that's something that should be central to this discussion as well. Okay, it's probably a whole new ch lecture in itself. Maybe you should invite Guy to come and give that lecture sometime. Okay, I'm going to take a couple at the back now because loads of people want to come in. So, gentlemen, first up there. Yes. Great, thanks. Um, you might not have been expecting this, but um, when you put up the image of Bootle and Litherland and Seaforth, I was actually the vicar there for 16 years, ah, up until yes. three years ago. My difficulty when I hear something like that, and I know you've worked in some way, the issue there is really complex. Now, I was there 16 years. Male life expectancy is 68 years of age in Seaforth. It's the bottom 1% in deprivation in the whole of the country. The Dunningsbridge Road, um, most of the housing there under current planning regs would never allow to be built now. So in a sense it's, um, um, maybe it was unfortunate you said who in their right mind. The thing is when you get to know um, politicians and others in that area, actually they are people of integrity wrestling with really complex stuff. The trade-off between trying to make a difference now actually in terms of something that will make a more significance. The docks have had uh, hundreds of millions of pounds invested in. The Northwest economy needs the port to be successful. The population within one mile of the docks is the ones that feel done to. So it's almost, it's, um, my question is about public debate and that is about when we use phrases like who in their right mind because that's actually, uh, that says, that's stopping debate really, um, but also about how do we have that public debate about hard stuff, trade-off for the future to the present, and how are you engaging in the more complexity of the issues? Well, look, the first thing I would say is what I hope was very clear from my discussion is, uh, when I talked about it, is the reason I'm interested in that issue is because the local community contacted us. They came and saw me specifically and said, we were appalled at this proposal of a road going through our local uh, park is there something Friends of the Earth can do to help? So it's not the other way around. Um, so our experience is thousands of people in that local community have come together and have said they, they do not want that road going through their park. I mean, all the other issues you raise there are, of course, very relevant and important. But I think if what we're asking for is good quality debate, we also have to say, why is it so often, particularly in the poorest, most vulnerable communities in this country, often they're presented with only one option build this road or don't build this road. Why is it that's the only op option on the table? A big part of the problem is Highways England. You know, we have an agency there, a public body that has been set up <coughs> and to, to do one thing, which is to, to design and propo propose, design and build and maintain roads. Guess what? All they ever do is think about that. They don't look holistically at the transport situation. I'll come back to you in a sec. Yeah, I'll come back to you in a second and then you can say, but what they, what they don't do is look holistically at the situation and actually weigh up, as Highways England, you know, the, the different alternatives there to work out what's the most sustainable option. That's why, as Friends of the Earth, we've called for Highways England to be scrapped 
and replaced with a truly sustainable transport agency that can look at all the options and propose whatever is the best option rather than always default to roads. And the local community there, if you look at their website, Save Rose Valley, they have proposed alternatives to what can be done there to putting a, a dual carriageway through that. So, but it comes back to what I was saying before. Why is it we think it's okay to take away urban green space as a so-called solution to a problem that you've articulated, but we wouldn't think it's okay to, to do various other things? And that would be my real point. Okay. Sorry, can, do come back. Can I come back? Because in a sense it's part... Because I am versed with the detail and I stand stood with the community as part of it. It is so complex and I actually agree with, I, I don't want that road to be built through Rimrose. We, we, uh, our church school, Rimrose, we named it after the valley, Rimrose Hope. It's right on the beginning of that little roundabout in know, your image know, that, that, yeah. that's there. So I was chair of governance of the school. And there are many other options that have been suggested. Um, and um, it's, it's almost like, I know in some of your, it's oversimplifying it. Um, and I don't know, um, it's one part of the community which dominates because they speak louder, but I don't know how, no, I, um, from what you said, I don't know if that progresses or helps that local community. Okay, well, thank you very much for the contribution, but we, we'll, let's move on from the point here. So we had, um, yeah, lady there with the arm, arm, yeah, that's it, with the wristband, sorry. <laughs> and then come, yeah, and then we'll come down, yeah. Sorry, I'm one at the back, yeah, sorry. Um, you, you said that 28% of land use in the UK is for pasture for cattle and sheep. And when you're talking about doubling, doubling the amount of tree cover, how much of that do you expect to be on this 28% of land pasture? Um, well, I don't have precise that figure. Uh, the figures I have is how we've worked out where you could, you could grow trees, plant trees, or allow natural regeneration to enable us to reach the figure of doubling tree cover. So a slightly different way of answering the question. But it's all on our website if you want to go through it in detail and the maps about how we could do it. They're, as I said, they're indicative maps, but just looking at, you know, is the amount of land there that could be done? And it's about, it's that focus on grade four agricultural land as the best place to do it, particularly prioritising near towns and cities uh, with some, uh, also more trees in agricultural areas as well, but not forests and stuff. So have a look at it and you'll be able to go through the figures there. But, you know, it's all, it's us offering a big vision here. What we want to do is encourage everyone that's excited about this to get involved and share your ideas on how we think we can do it. Great. Yeah, so at the back there, yeah. Lady right at the back, sorry, yeah. And then I will, I promise I'll come down, yeah, I will do. And I had a gentleman here in the mauve top wanted to come. Yeah. Um, good evening. Um, I just uh, wanted to open up the debate around livestock a bit further. Um, they've had a lot of bad, bad press, really. Um, but I just wanted to consider that in the UK, actually, they're a really important part of um, the countryside that we know and love. Um, you separated out arable and pasture, but of course the truth of the matter is that a lot of arable has pasture as part of its rotation. Yeah. Those animals are really important for increasing fertility of the soil, yeah. combating black grass, all the things that farmers are throwing chemicals at, um, you know, and it would help reduce inputs. They're really important in maintaining some of our most valued um, natural habitats, particularly sort of the, the um, Cotswold limestone grasslands. Um, really important for some of our key species, like uh, greater horseshoe bats. Um, so whilst I absolutely take your point that we need to reduce our meat eating, um, I just think that the, the debate around livestock has become very one-dimensional, and we need to consider all those other things as well. 
Yeah, look, I agree. And um, that's why I always say less but better meat, because I think this, this issue about how the, the meat that we do still eat, or pe a lot of people choose to eat, we've got to think about how that's produced and, uh, and those methods as well. Yeah. Um, grass-fed beef, well, grass-fed grass meat is yeah, the important thing, not cereal-fed right. meat. Completely agree. Great. Um, okay, so many people want to come in. Um, I'm gonna, Craig, can I take three questions in one go? Because yeah. otherwise we're not going to get everybody Absolutely. in. Absolutely. So I want to come to a gentleman here with the glasses. Yeah, thanks, um, Marsha. If you, yeah, that's great. You've been waiting a while. And then, yeah, I need to get to you, sorry. Two of you there, yeah. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, I want to pick up a little bit on what the lady said at the back and support what she says, being as we are food producers. Um, you've concentrated today on solving 10% of the carbon emission problem in the UK and largely saying that that can be put at the foot of farming by growing extra trees. Um, and the lady over here respectfully said that we want to alter the way landowners think to try and achieve that. Can I respectfully say to all of you as consumers, it's time you started thinking about how you run your lives before you start trying to dictate to us how we run our lives. We have got a world at the moment that is driven by Chinese imports, which has not been mentioned at all today. And the carbon that comes out of China, I can assure you, is vastly, vastly, vastly ahead of wherever the UK will ever be. The other thing you need to consider as consumers is that you're quite happy to import palm oil from areas that are chopping down rainforest to produce palm trees to go into 25% of the food that you eat contains palm oil of some description. And with the greatest respect, guys, until consumers start solving the 90% of the problem, we are more than happy to come along with the 10%. Our 200-acre farm has got 15% of it covered in oak trees that have been established for thousands of years, and we have not destroyed any of those trees. We have miles of hedgerows that we have not destroyed. We are growing grass-fed beef and sheep, which is one of the healthiest forms of food that you will have, and yet the common agricultural policy changes that appear to be coming along the road at the moment will actually we have done that without any subsidy, I'll hasten to add, and the changes that are coming along at the moment look like they are not gonna reward us who have kept those trees and not chopped them down in any way, shape or form. So as consumers, guys, you have got a lot of thinking to do before you, you start actually causing us to do thinking for you. Okay, thanks so much, that's really interesting. <laughs> That's a really important perspective. Thank you very much. Uh, while we actually, Craig, do you want to answer that while we get the mic up to here? Because a, it is important to yeah, sure. respond to that. Yeah, Yeah. well, there's a, a lot of issues in, in all of that. Um, the first debate, I mean, let's pick them out one by one. There is often this kind of discussion that feels like, oh, you know, can we in the UK lead on some of this if actually see what's happening in India and China and so on? Of course we need action on the climate crisis globally. We need it right around the world. We need it in those countries. It's why Friends of the Earth is part of the world's largest grassroots environmental network with Friends of the Earth affiliated groups in 75 countries and why we're campaigning right around the world locally and nationally for these sort of the changes that are right in those countries to bring about that. You're absolutely right. We need to look at our consumption and particularly how 
Often the products we buy have carbon emissions associated with them in countries like China. It's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's been estimated that around half of our carbon footprint as individuals is associated with the products we buy. So I think you're right, let's absolutely look at it. And it's a, it's a huge topic. I didn't get into tonight because it wasn't under the theme of the lecture, but it's, I've got a whole other talk about that can do that. So I completely with you on that. I think your points about palm oil, uh, again, is right, and around sort of uh, standards and so on. It comes back to the issue I was raising earlier about trade deals, because I really, really worry that we could be, uh, as the UK, we could be looking to sign some quick and dirty trade deals, to be honest, with very low environmental standards in the near future. And that's a real problem for the issues you're talking about. If we rush and do a trade deal with Donald Trump, um, and it's got low allowing in products with lower agricultural standards, for example, that's not good for UK farmers, but we know that that's almost like the top of the list of what Donald Trump wants in getting a trade deal with us. Did you know that the Malaysian government, in ha trying to have a conversation with the UK about a trade deal uh, with, with us, has said that they would like to lower standards on palm oil, which are currently in the trade agreement that the EU has with the Malaysia. So these are really important things to watch in any trade deals in the future. And ultimately, that's essential because British farmers should not be undercut by farmers in other countries that are operating to lower standards. Because there are many British farmers, and it very much sounds like you as you're talking about, that absolutely are showing the way here. And the, the reason we're able to point as to what needs to be done across the country is because there's plenty of examples of farmers that are doing the right thing. That's absolutely essential. The sad thing is, is it is a minority in many cases, though, and there are many parts of the country where we're not seeing anything like those kind of practices being put in place. So that is a problem, and the opportunity that's there to deal with the climate ecological crisis through changes, sensible changes in land use and putting the right policies and incentives in place for farm owners and, and other landowners could deliver this transformation, and that's what we're saying. Okay, great. So we've got two colleagues up here, and then I'll come down here. Yeah. Hi, Craig. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the Paris Agreement. So, um, you know, the, man, it was, the agreement was that it was supposed to be uh, limiting to 1.5 degrees warming, but then if you speak to climate scientists privately, they're actually locking us into more like 4 degrees warming. Um, and the committee, the UK Committee for Climate Change is, you know, mandated to fulfil the Paris Agreement, so their hands are slightly tied with this. But if you speak to somebody like Kevin Anderson at the... Tyndall Centre, he should say, he's saying that we should be net zero by 2030. Um, and I'm just wondering where you sort of stand on that, where Friends of the Earth sort of stand on that. Yeah. Okay, great. And then the colleague next to you, yeah. I think you had a... Yeah. Yeah, you, I think you had a question, didn't you? Uh, yes, uh, it was actually a point more than a question. Um, Try um, to make it like a question. Uh, <laughs> well, um, so... I'm very pleased that uh, the vice chancellor has left because uh, I might lose my job over making a comment. But um, uh, the university, this university, has not got a great track record uh, with trees. And uh, indeed, if you look at the website uh, today, it says plan tree removal. Um, and there has been quite a bit of um, habitat loss, uh, both this university, not just we're not just the only ones, but other universities as well. And I wondered turning it into a question how you would uh, best advise somebody who's working in a university to try and make <laughs> powers that be Very good aware effort. of this. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just...
while we're bringing the mic down, one final question in this round here. Yeah. Um, you gave the example of road building, and, um, and also I think quite a few of us in Wiltshire were quite surprised that Wiltshire came out on top on your assessment of local areas, and I think partly because the raft of solar panels across the, the county, perhaps. Um, so this week, Wiltshire Council, along with the government, announced £75 million to build a new road that completes a circle around Chippenham. So at the moment, there's a main road on one side of it. They want to, it's on about a third of it. They want to build a new road right the way around, which is a kind of um, radial road, so it doesn't really help public transport connectivity. It's got on a mainline railway. It's um, already got kind of what you might call superb links to motorway and trunk road network. Um, it's interesting that it's been announced this week, £75 million spent on a town just before an election on a marginal seat. <laughs> so they, they obviously think that's an attractive thing. So how do we balance, obviously, something that seems to be, a new road seems to be attractive to the public, not only to the people who want to build the roads? Sure, okay. So we're going from the very global to the very local in those three questions there. Yeah. Let's talk about the Paris Agreement. Uh, yes, it's nowhere near enough. It's a start. I mean, thank goodness, you know, you start to get some uh, movement. Um, but no, it's nowhere near what the science requires. And there is a really odd thing about climate change is that, and, and the climate politics of this is that actually the science is really pretty clear about what needs to be done. Um, and there still seems to be this belief that actually we can negotiate, our politics can negotiate with that. It, it really can't. We've absolutely got to take the action the scientists are telling us is required. And, and discussions about debates about whether it can be done and so on is the, is the wrong framing. You know, it's, it's just the same as, you know, a moonshot or any of these things. We've got to achieve those cuts in emissions according to what the scientists are saying is required. You've got to bear in mind, you know, got scientific papers published last year, one in particular called Hot House Earth Paper. Look, Google it if you want. It's the world's best climate scientist saying, if we don't sort this out in the next decade or so, it will result in a change to Earth systems that could be there for hundreds of thousands of years. You know? It's, it, nothing's, it's really the only thing we should be talking about in our politics at the moment. Unfortunately, there's a few other things we're talking about. Um, so the Paris Agreement is nothing like good enough. It was good, and Friends of the Earth campaigned really hard through our international network with groups in 75 countries to uh, support the small island developing states in particular to get that target of 1.5 degrees in there. Um, it's going to be very tough to get to that. We accept that, but we're going to need to see it. And the pledges on the table from governments at the moment, you're right, add up to somewhere between 3 to 4 degrees of warming, which would be disastrous. That, that, that absolutely takes us past those tipping points. So we do need to see every country come forward with much uh, better commitments. Now, the UK government earlier in the year, someone alluded to, did, did uh, pledge that we would reach net zero the, to, in 2050 for the UK. And that isn't nearly uh, early enough. It needs to happen far, far sooner if we're going to deliver that. You've also got to bear in mind there's an issue about probability here. This is often missed out in the debate, is that actually... What the government's committing there is to give us a 50-50 chance of the UK delivering what is required to reach net zero. Now, 50-50 is not very good odds when you're talking about the survival of our civilization. I prefer slightly better odds than that. 
So um, we do need to see much further and faster. Now, there's a bit of a debate going on in the environmental movement and in our politics at the moment. So what should the debate, what should the date be? Extinction Rebellion, who've done a fantastic job in raising the profile of this over the last year, uh, said it should be 2025. I think that would be exceptionally tough, I have to say. It's hard to see where's the plan to kind of deliver that. But I love the sense of urgency and so on. Other people could say, well, it should be 2030. I think the Labour Party said 2030. It could be 2040. Actually, all of that's kind of missing the point, I would suggest. What we really need to do is move as fast as we possibly can on this. And we haven't got a clue how fast we can move to reduce our emissions because we haven't really tried yet. At the moment, we've really put effort into this and focus on cutting emissions as fast as possible in the short term. Whole new that research and innovation and new approaches will suddenly open up new ways that we didn't dream possible. I've had the whole of my career being told things can't be done and then we work out a way that it can be done. You know, 10 years ago, we were being told that offshore wind was the most expensive form of electricity production in this country. Even just earlier this year, the Committee on Climate Change produced their route to net zero by 2050, in which they assumed a certain price for offshore wind that would be reached in 2050. Four months later, that was broken spectacularly, and now offshore wind is one of the cheapest forms of electricity production. Quite extraordinary. So amazing things can happen this. On solar, you know, we've seen the take-up and deployment of solar worldwide is something like 200 times what was forecast uh, 20 years ago. So we can move much further and much faster, but actually what we need is a real focus on the short term to just get on with it and stop debating the end point because it'll become a lot, it, we'll do it much quicker and we'll surprise ourselves how quickly we can do it if we stop faffing around and having the debate about the end point and get on with it now. I also think it'd be really useful for us to have shorter term targets, ideally annual emission targets about how we cut emissions, but certainly targets that are shorter than electoral cycles. Great, okay. Sorry, I didn't answer no, no, that too. We've, we've, we've basically out of time and we've okay. got to get to our grass-fed and vegetarian and vegan dinners. So I want to, we've got one more question from the gentleman here. Thank you very much. Um, I want to defend our local community, which didn't come out very well in your comparison. I think our local authority are doing an excellent job having declared a climate emergency this year and we're now going to roll that out at parish council level. But my point is that I don't think it was a fair comparison because Somerset, as you well know, is grassland. It's dairy in the lower land and beef in the higher ground on the Mendips, for example. And I, I'm not sure that you gave enough, you said enough about grassland being an important part of carbon sequestration. Thank you. Okay, thanks Okay, much. well, look, there was a couple of questions I didn't get around to last time as well, so let me just take yeah. those three. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Please do. Um, look, on the local authority thing, from what you said there, and also what the gentleman said here about Wiltshire, surprise, they came out um, on top as well. Look, we did this based, it's rigorously based on data, the data that was available. We are absolutely delighted if it stimulates local debates about whether your local authority could be doing better, or you're surprised they've come out where they are and you want to question that. That's exactly what we want to do. You know, this was an assessment that we produced according to data that was available. But what you're proving is what we've always said at Friends of the Earth, is that local people know the details better than we do. So look at the data on our website, interrogate it, take it away. If you think it's wrong, great, fine. Uh, do something with it. Get out there, campaign. That's what I'd simulate to do. And um, on the Wiltshire, the road being built, 75 million quid, 
you know, I just think, what else? Uh, 75 million quid, just think how many bike lanes that would put in across Somerset, you know, um, or, or Wiltshire or whatever. There's so much more that can be done rather than just building a road, so I completely agree there. Um, thank you very much for the question on university. Um, you're trying to make me really feel uncomfortable there. <laughs> so, uh, lovely. But what I would say, I've worked in universities and so on, and actually, when universities improve their environmental performance, it's nearly always because staff and students get together and campaign and push for that, and people work together to change their community. And it comes back to that point. Community campaigning works, whether your community is Wiltshire, whether it's uh, Bath, uh, whether it's the community that is your university and so on. All of us can deliver change. All of us can be part of the solution here. What we, what we, it's not for me to prescribe to you exactly what you should do. All I would say is please don't do nothing. <laughs> right. Well, that's Well, Craig, that's a, a really optimistic note to end on. And I want to thank you very much on behalf of the university, on behalf of IPR, and all of us for coming here this evening. We've learnt lots from your presentation, and there's much we can do as a university, as well actually as in the run-up to an election debate in the constituencies of this area with the candidates and, of course, how you choose to vote in the end too. So thank you very much indeed, Craig. Thank you. Do join us for the rest of the series. There's plenty coming up. You can see it all on the IPR website. Lots going to happen over the next uh, six months or so, so please stay engaged with us. Uh, as we take these lectures forward. Thank you very much for coming. Great. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Good. Very engaged.